listening to Church Unplugged, the podcast of Christ Community Chapel. In each episode, we look at questions and topics that are related to our faith in Jesus and to the way that it plays out in everyday life. This episode is part two of a discussion about race and Christianity with Calvin Brown and Lou Holmes. So back in July, we had a forum with Joe and Calvin Brown, who's the pastor of Destiny Church in Twinsburg, where we discussed issues of race and Christianity. We had some questions we didn't get to, so we wanted to record a podcast to answer some of them. It was so long and so good, we had to split it into two. So this is part two of our discussion with Calvin Brown and Lou Holmes. Welcome in to Church Unplugged. Um, yeah, and with uh, with the police, how do how do we keep from uh, doing the same thing to police that we do to whole races, which is to take the, uh, a fraction, or a representative, and make it the whole? And yeah. it, I mean, part of that I know, or I would assume, is that you can't tell which person is racist and which person is not. Mm-hmm. But if I was a policeman, it seems like I'd be really frustrated <laughs> because I'd be frustrated with my own, with with sure. the, with the cops that are bad. But I'd be frustrated that I that every time someone talks about police brutality, I would say I would feel like they were talking about me. Mm-hmm. And how do we how do we try to deal with that while also seeing that there's a problem? Why don't you go first this time? I like it better <laughs> when uh, Pastor Brown takes the lead-off position. Um, so what I would say on that that topic is um, I can empathize with the police officer as a black man when generalizations are being made about you personally, based on some broader observations, you right. know, so. And you are uh, a larger black man. I am. What are you, six? Four. Four, yeah. Um, probably right. shrinking at this point, but the, <laughs> so so there is just an, an aspect of, okay, I have to be aware of my tone. I have to be aware of my disposition. I probably have to go out of my way to affirm and, you know, disarm people with smiles and other things. It's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work to just walk out the house. Um, So I empathize with it and I don't dismiss it because, you know, I know police officers, I know white police officers, like our family, we're always about if there's an opportunity in our neighborhood with our kids, getting them to interact, right? All the police officers that we've interacted, at least in our neighborhood since we've lived in Macedonia, have been very, you know, approachable. I think that said, you know, allyship probably means a little something different for a police officer than it may mean for somebody in business or even that it may mean for somebody in a spiritual leadership position. And I think, you know, those officers who feel that's not me, like that's not my brand, that's not what we represent, I think that's probably the majority but I think we've reached a situation where it can no longer be I'm doing what I need to do and I'm not going to be accountable or responsible for what happens more broadly with the other people that are partners with me in law right. enforcement. So so I think, again, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I think, you know, on one level, you know, taking more personal accountability and driving a little bit more understanding relationship, whatever it is with the communities you serve to break down some of those perceptions, if that's what they happen to be. 
Um, and then I, I mean, I, I feel like even on the professional side with what I do from a, a, a career standpoint, more representation, right? I mean, you, you need, you know, policymaking and leadership positions. There needs to be more representation of people that understand this issue maybe and can bring a different perspective to the table. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that really gets at it, but, but I feel like, you know, on some level I understand it because from my own little corner I can understand if somebody makes a, an assessment about you, you know, just based on the uniform you wear or the color of your skin. But that probably means that there's a little bit more, you know, intentionality that has to be for the people that really want to see change and are really passionate about it. And we talk about being non-racist versus anti-racist. Right. I think if you take an anti-racist perspective, it it catalyzes you to do more than be disappointed that you don't you're not being appropriately represented by, right. you know, a few that may do the same thing or a profession hold the same profession that you do. So Okay. Good. All right. You you want to move it? Can we move on? Yeah, to no, I, I will I will just say that I think the uh, I think the responsibility largely so again, both individual and sort of collective, I think the the collective responsibility um, uh, lies with with police and police departments and cities and um, making sure that these men and women are presented to the community truly as servants and helpers. Like in our community, uh, I know a couple of police officers and I encourage them. I've talked to the mayor. I said, will you have the guys just like mm -hmm. stop in? Mm -hmm. Like if they're on shift, they drive by. Don't just drive by and mm -hmm. sometimes they'll park in the park. <laughs> stop in and just Mm -hmm. Watch some kids play and give some high fives. No crime is going on. Mm -hmm. You're not being called in for anything. Just be a part of us, you right. know. Smile more. Take off the dark, menacing-looking sunglasses. Just present yourself more. Um, and I think to us, you know, I try to wave to police mm -hmm. officers. I try to nod. I, I try to do those things. But, you know, again, there is, some, there is a culture there, and we've, we've sort of created this culture really if you look at the history of policing in america i mean really the the first police really were um the uh what do they call it the slave patrols mm -hmm. and they just and then the ku klux klan mm -hmm. and they were really established to police racial norms mm -hmm. even in the north you had the white anglo-saxons who were overseeing the irish who were overseeing the poles who were like so right. the, the whole history and culture the ethos the dna of policing mm -hmm. in america is broken so we really need a resurrection um, and I, that I don't have an answer for. <laughs> um, I think we're hearing some things about how to reappropriate funding and what have you. But I, at, at a local community level, I think we can do a better job in presenting our police officers to the community, not just showcasing them, but really presenting them as servants of the community, you know. And like Scripture says, be obedient to authorities. They don't bear a sore for nothing, Right. Um, so I think we can we can cultivate some relationship um, at least at the community level. That doesn't speak to the much bigger issues there. Okay, yeah, I did uh, hear or uh, learn something about policing in New York City when it first started. Was the uh, the Irish came over uh, in the potato famine, and mm -hmm. there were a lot of criminals that came with 
that mm-hmm. Irish um, immigration. But um, they ended up creating pl- a police force that were that was Irish, Irish, and then they would be tried by Irish judges, or tried by Irish juries and sentenced mm-hmm. by Irish judges. Wow! And that made sense. And that, that's something the African American community has never, never has never been able to have. Yeah. And I think that you know it's hard to go back. You can't go back now because right. it sounds so racist to say that. Mm-hmm. But I just think of how I mean because you had Irish people going, "Hey, we're not going to put up with this," but they knew they were going to be fair because they mm-hmm. loved Irish mm-hmm. people. Right. right. But anyway. <laughs> um, Lou, you uh, mentioned the word, and just you flew right past it, reparation a while ago. And uh, that's a hot word right now because it usually, uh, I know that for white people, it tends to feel like, oh, write a check, mm-hmm. uh, which doesn't feel like that would really solve stuff. I know that both of you have been uh, are involved, or I know Lou, you're thinking about it. I know, Calvin, you are already involved with trying to figure out how to create opportunities like you, like we both, I mean, I think Lou, your part, your point about saying that the black um, community may be more uh, vulnerable because of its history than uh, the white community to certain societal ills. Mm -hmm. Calvin, you have in your uh, ministry business model uh, an attempt to try to start to create more opportunities that would create more resilience and uh, a deeper, I think, effectiveness of whatever reparations are. Can you explain some of that? Yeah, uh, maybe it's the way that the average person can ad- address uh, some of the disparities that you know exist in in our country. Uh, so. You know, is think, that fair for me to to, to connect that with reparations? Uh, I mean, at least no, a, I think it's fair. I could um, I could speak to I could speak to reparations in a bigger way, and I could speak to um, reparation, well, whatever in a in right. a more personal way. Right. Okay, I'll do that. How about I do? Yeah, that? let's do that. So at the, at the personal level, um, you know, I I I believe that I believe that everything we have is a gift from the Lord. It all belongs to him, right? And uh, we have a responsibility, you know, yes, for self-care and family care and what have you, but I think we also have a broader responsibility to the community. And um, we have created a way to, to help people help others. Um, it's called the Edge Initiative, and uh, we, we run a sports facility that um, a lot of uh, – elite or budding elite aspiring elite athletes come to and the families who tend to be able to most take advantage of the services we provide um, not necessarily just what we provide but what our partners provide they need resources and they need more than just enough resources to have an apartment and a nice community to get their kids in school right they need other resources well we believe that through inclusion support we can create empowerment for kids, filling in the gap. If it's helping with fees for club mm-hmm. club sports or private lessons or ACT, SAT testing, equipment, what have you, whatever they need, sports performance training, to help that kid maximize 
their potential and the opportunities given to them. And that seems to me like that that is the model of the both and, right? Because mm-hmm. you're saying that there's personal responsibility. Yep. You still have to take the SAT your t- yourself. Yep. Yep. But uh, we can provide for you. Uh, what you need in order to be as prepared as you possibly can and have what you need to have in order to succeed. Yes. Right. So at a personal level, I think it's a practical way to come alongside and help. And it moves us from this general conversation about black people or white people to mm-hmm. um, Barbara or James or Sue or whatever mm-hmm. the kid's name is. There's a kid that you can help or a collective of kids one can help support in a very practical way and any anyone with kids kids in sports know Mm -hmm. that you need either some really good connections or you better have played at a high level yourself or you better have some money some resources to get your kid all the extra support Mm -hmm. so that's that's what we've presented um i i I, a friend of (laughs) of mine that i had a conversation about reparations that's a really that's such a big big conversation there are two things that I think are, I would ask people to think about. When you think about this, what some call this experiment of democracy and, 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 um, and capitalism in America, think about, think about how this startup got started. There was free land, free labor, free material. It does not take a business genius to have a successful enterprise if you can get free labor, free land and free material. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really that's really what our country was was founded on. We, and I think we need to admit that. We need to say that's what happened. That's what happened. Okay? Now, now wait, let me stop you there. Uh, okay. Just because uh, one of the things in studying like William Wilberforce's life, mm-hmm. right, who was the one who was the British Parliament member who actually seemed like almost single-handedly is the one who overturned slavery. Uh, when I read uh, his the uh, biography of William Wilberforce, uh, what that bi- biographer said that William Wilberforce did that no one else had been able to do in the history of mankind was to get the world to agree for the first time that slavery was wrong. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, virtually every country, including the African countries that, slaves came over from mm-hmm, mm-hmm. had slaves mm-hmm. uh, the Roman Empire 25% of the Roman Empire were slaves mm-hmm. so almost every big every <laughs> successful culture was built the way you mm-hmm. have just described mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. Uh, that they land was free to the extent that they killed the people who were there before them mm-hmm. um, and then they claimed the land, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. then uh, if they could find people they could enslave, they did so. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. so I don't, I, I, that yeah. part of me, I, I, I remember a conversation I had with a, with a student who was uh, a white student. And sometimes my most frustrating conversations happen more with white, woke people <laughs> than with black people because I feel like uh, they but she was very you know, very much uh, frustrated with and I would, with America and racism and everything I was going you know America basically has done I mean agreed they took over land that belonged to somebody else they enslaved people but they 
they were following a pattern. They weren't breaking out into a new pattern. This was an old pattern. Yeah, there's definitely now, the some, difference would yeah. be a race was was race based where you could see what somebody looked like and right. say they're mm-hmm. a slave or they should be a slave. Right. The race based yeah the race based well. racism did some serious damage. Yeah, and I think um, yes. Yeah, so we also have to consider like where like where's the Roman civilization now? Right. <laughs> right. So um, so I think. I, I hear what you're saying, and I think it's important for us to um, admit what has happened, that the American, this American story isn't pristine and beautiful. Um, you know, the Confederate flag does not represent just Southern pride. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it is deeply racist at its core. Right. I mean, read... Uh, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, read his speech. Why, why civil war was happening? I mean, yeah. why they? I mm-hmm. mean, it's you know. So long, let's be honest well, be, about the yeah. story. And yeah. uh, let me jump on what mm-hmm. it, I think that's true. What you're, what it seems like you're saying is, yeah, our history may be the same as uh, other civilizations, but if we are going to be different, right? If mm-hmm. we are going to to actually be the America that uh, that a lot of us want to think we are. There may be a way to do that, but it's not following what every other country has done, which is to basically ignore it and move on. Right. Ignore it or or tell a different story. Just tell the truth. Right. Um, but I tell you this conversation about reparations. So that's the beginning. But think about in the mid uh, 1900s, 1930, 40, 50, when the U.S. government literally created suburbs, mm-hmm. right. okay, funded those suburbs, and the, the development of those suburbs gave GIs, you know, particularly those coming out of World War II, you know, gave them the money, the loans, what have you, and systematically, um, uh, restricted those properties, those lands, even in the deed, that they could not go to black people. Like, they had to be white people. So one could argue, if you want to talk about reparations, we know who committed it, we know when they committed it, and you can quantify it. And it's only 50 years ago that they did it. Hmm. 60 years ago. Right? So... And we've seen our government has the capacity to produce, you know, a couple trillion dollars mm-hmm. to try to make right. a right wrong, right, a wrong, a, a wrong right. So anyway, I just, I, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on reparations. I'm not, I, I just thought that was an interesting. This is not 400 years ago. We're talking about just 60 years ago, when the suburbs were created, that uh, the the government did it. We so we know who to culprit. Yeah, is. that was called redlining. Yeah. Redlining yeah. was a part of the practice. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think I stumbled across when I was referring to re- repairing the relationship between the police and the community. I mentioned reparations. Why are you got to say reparations? Yeah, I go, man, that might have been a you know, Freudian slip or, you know, but, but I'm glad we got on the topic because um, I guess the one thing I'd say, a, a few things, and I, I'll try not to go too long on this, but relative to other civilizations and how they started and some of, you know, I mean, I think the, the part that always gets me is that, you know, our civil, the, the United States was founded on Christianity, right? So when I think about 
you know, how that might have been interpreted then and what that really meant, maybe, you know, a certain form of Christianity, but not equally applied to all people, you know, I think that changes it a little bit for us in terms of this is what we said we believe, but I don't know if the application, I think it was maybe A for effort, you know, not an A for execution in terms of how that, that worked out. So I think that, that'd be one thing. I think the, the other thing I remember you mentioned in the talk you had, and I hadn't fully appreciated until I, I heard um, you two talking about it at the forum, was that when slaves were freed, and you know, forty acres and a mule, but then the subsidies that were created to make the slave owners whole, right? <laughs> you know, it, it's actually kind of even just a man. Like, how did that? How did that get through? Um, but I do think it's a little bit like I, for me, the first thing I was like, oh, well, that was the first version of PPP loans. There was the paycheck protection program for the slave owners because they were losing and they had to be. So that that's just like. Whoa, <laughs> like that, that's pretty alarming. Uh, so I think at a macro level, you can point to that. You can point to, you know, the redlining and some of the systemic things that were, I was watching the the one video. Um, I think his name is Phil Vischer or, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. um, And just. The guy who did vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just kind of, you know, you know, just him walking through just the, hey, if you're a realtor, you you, you, you could lose your license if you sold to a black family and the GI bills and the adoption rate for black veterans versus, I mean, it's just like, okay, you know, I'm not an expert. I don't know how the math would work or, you know, and, and I also don't know that it's completely economic or financial. I think there's multiple aspects to it, but I think just acknowledging that's probably some conversation or additional dialogue that that warrants. I think that, you know, at a global level, I think that's probably a fair argument and it's hard to say, you know, it should be completely dismissed, I guess, the concept of reparations. On a personal level, um, and one of the things that intrigued me about Pastor Brown and Edge, you know, so for me, you know, my mom passed a couple years ago, right? So when that happened, you know, my only child that was, you know, that rocked our entire foundation in terms of our family and so on and so forth. But then it became much more clear, okay, I think I mentioned to you, Pastor Joe, you know, my wife and I said, all right, we have been thinking about, you know, doing something, being more involved, you know, using our resources, our time, service, you know, finances, et cetera. So that's how the Fortify Foundation came about. It's like, all right. And we started like the first thing was like, hey, we can start a scholarship in my mom's name because education is important to me. Athletics are important to me. Spiritual foundations is important to us. So we're like, hey, let's let's figure out like a way to do that. But it wasn't all coming together. We didn't want to rush or, you know, whatever. So we're still kind of working through some of that. But, you know, for me, there are a couple of things that I've seen very specifically. And I keep going back to this support advocacy sponsorship model because I know it works, right? I know if you invest in individuals, irrespective of race, but specifically black youth who need it, it makes a big difference, right? So there's a... There's a term called, um, I think it's summer melt, right? So summer melt is basically, and it was newer to me probably about a couple years ago, but summer melt is basically um, college kids that get accepted to a college and never make it to their first class, right? So it's the attrition that happens because they miss deadlines, they can't, they don't have the finances to get to school, like whatever the case may be. So for me on a personal level, it's like, okay, you know, I know what education has afforded me and my family. I know how important it has been. You know, how do I, you know, how, the, how does our family use what we know 
to influence that and affect more lives. And then there's an athletic component. And then obviously, um, really just trying to figure out, you know, we don't want to exclude because we can use it as a way to carry the gospel too. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's not specifically for Christians, but at the end of the day, if it if we can help Christians and bring more people to the gospel through some of these efforts, I mean, that's kind of the thought process. Right. right. Um, but I completely, like, I think there's, you know, the quote about do what you can where you are with what you have. <laughs> in a spirit of love. In a, in a, in a spirit of love, love right? <laughs> like, I mean, it's so simple, but it's like everyone can do that, right? right? Everybody can do something, right? And I think for us, we're trying to figure out what that something is. Is and Good. I'd like to learn more about what Pastor Brown is doing, but I do feel like, and I don't mean to throw, I didn't mean to throw us off with the reparations because that was no, no, yeah. no that was me. I'm going after, but but I do feel like I'm glad we touched on it because there yeah. is some aspects that you know, the, you know, with my limited you know expertise in that domain, I feel like that conversation is definitely a one that's warranted. So. Let me finish. With, let's finish up with this. Um, of both and again, there are people who will say. Listen, the church ought to just preach the gospel and stay away from the race issue. And so um, and I like that we uh, started with kind of a both and, and we're going to end with a both and. Um, because, uh, you know, in the, the, uh, I, I watched a long, uh, a long video about the Confederacy and all of that. And one of the things that he was actually an ACLU lawyer who I'm usually not in cahoots with an ACLU <laughs> lawyer. But uh, when he was talking, it was really fascinating to me because he would say, you can change the law. I mean, he was really talking about the gospel, even though he didn't realize it. He was saying, you change the law. But people didn't stop being believing in white supremacy the moment you change the law. That, And what he was saying is that there has to be a heart change and so uh, th- I guess that's the thing that I'm, I'm kind of answering my own question. When people say that you have to preach the gospel, we, we say, if, if, and not talk about race, we say that about race, but we don't say that about um, child trafficking mm-hmm. or abortion, uh, abortion mm-hmm. different things. We say you do both and. You, may you right. try to lead people to Jesus because that will, and that is the ultimate solution. Jesus is always the ultimate solution. But in the meantime, you got to do what you can to uh, to impact injustice, to say, to protect the vulnerable, to do what Jesus says uh, in Matthew, where he talks about what it what it means to really follow him. Mm-hmm. So, you guys have anything to add to that? And yeah, we'll close. I, you know, in closing, you know, I. So I love what you said and uh, ending with a, a both and because it really is a both and 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 my so my my plea uh, to to the body of Christ is let's let's really be the body of Christ and um, it's our love one for another that we demonstrate that we are are His disciples uh, not by our ritual or even our confession so much it's 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 how we live. And we really do have the solution. I don't to 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 the to the challenges before us, but we've we've got to acknowledge that they really are, um, and commit to living for Christ. Um, 
Look at James, the book of James. He tells us, you know, like, what does pure religion look like? It's one that looks after the orphans and widows in their distress. Mm -hmm. Scripture tells us to, if we see a brother or sister caught in sin, you know, pull them out, you know, to the best, the best of our ability. Be careful that we don't sin ourselves. I just, I don't want us as the body of Christ to miss mm -hmm. this opportunity. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity that we could just, just keep waiting and waiting and let it sort of die down and we get back to our whatever normal functional lives, mm. you know, or we can really embrace this moment and because God is doing something, something is happening. Foundations are being shaken. Questions are being asked. I just don't want us to, to miss this. And I don't mean just for the dismantling of systemic racism, mm -hmm. whatever, which it should be, because Scripture tells us have nothing to do with the deeds of evil, but expose them. We, if there's something that is, that is killing people, literally and spiritually and emotionally, like it's crushing people, we should, to the best of our ability, speak to it, the systems, but also the people. And um, we are just uniquely wired to do that. We've right. got the love of Christ. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit. We're global. We've got billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars at our, at, at our disposal, right? Like we as the body of Christ can really not change the world and make it a utopia and usher in the millennial. I'm, not, I'm just saying, I'm saying, but to, but to impact the lives of people for eternity, but also for here, because not mm. everyone is going to come to believe, but mm. we are all, we believe in the Imago Dei, black, white, otherwise rich, poor, Iranian, Mexican, whatever, like we are, everyone is created in the image of God. Let's, let's be found as people when, when God asks us, when we, we are going to stand before him and give an account, mm -hmm. like, did you love your neighbor is yourself and not be found and say, well, well, who's my neighbor? Right. Right. That's, that's my heart. You've been listening to Church Unplugged, the podcast of Christ Community Chapel. In each episode, we're going to look at topics and questions that are related to our faith in Jesus and to the way that it plays out in everyday life. We want your feedback. We want your suggestions. If you've got ideas or questions that you'd like to hear answered on the show, you can email us at churchunplugged.com at ccchapel.com. We would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.